Welcome to the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and in this episode of the podcast, we are going to take a trip through the solar system. My guest is Francis Nimmo. He is a professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And his research specialty is understanding the structure and evolution of rocky and icy planets, in particular, icy satellites, building planets, the moon, and Pluto. So we are going to talk about all of those topics here in the next hour. And I have to say, this is the first episode that we have done that has been devoted to planetary science, but space in general, all things space. I mean, getting stuff into low Earth orbit and sending probes out past Pluto and looking into the vast distances of the universe with those great big space-based telescopes and, you know, land telescopes as well, looking, you know, the further out we look, the further into the past we're looking and just considering the almost unfathomable scale of the observable universe and who knows how much more there is beyond what we can see, uh, it really puts all human concerns into perspective, I think, and makes me feel a whole lot better about just about everything. So this is a topic for which I have great enthusiasm, even though you've heard me say very little about it, uh, possibly nothing about it in the past. All right, here's my conversation with Professor Francis Nimmo. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and I am joined by Professor Francis Nimmo of the University of California at Santa Cruz, where he teaches the subject of planetary sciences, which is absolutely fascinating to me. I'm a uh, junkie for space news on YouTube. Professor Nimmo, welcome to the Padverb Podcast. Thank you very much. As I say, I, I don't report on science news, uh, but I am definitely a consumer of it. So, I mean, I suppose I, I report on science news in as much as I talk to a lot of people about uh, cognitive science, but not astronomy or cosmology or astrophysics or any of those sexy things about which I'm completely unqualified to uh, hold court. But I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. This is a big year because the James Webb Space Telescope successfully got off the ground, got out to that Lagrange point, did its very complicated origami dance and is actually working now. Uh, how big a deal is that in your life? So it's, it's interesting. When I say I'm a planetary scientist to people, the first question they ask is, oh, what telescopes do you use? Mm -hmm. And actually, the answer is that when we're studying things in this solar system, we don't actually use telescopes very much. We've sort of gone beyond that, that the kind of questions that we want to answer really require you to spend a, send a spacecraft there. And, and so... Um, Telescopes have a surprisingly small influence in my field compared to what you would expect. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, James Webb can do amazing things. And so this week it released a picture of the rings of Uranus, which we've barely ever seen before. And so that the fact that you can see these things from a, a satellite in, in Earth orbit is really amazing. And so I'm sure there'll be good science to come out of that. But really when we want to study an object in this solar system these days we want to send a spacecraft there right i'm always excited about those those nasa probes that go way out there but they're quite infrequent that's right uh so we've only sent five probes to the edge of the solar system and that's in 50 years of of sending spacecraft and so you're right that it's you have to be prepared to wait decades for the results to come back. <laughs> 
So those five are Voyager 1 and 2 and New yep. Horizons. Those are the only three I can name off the top of my head. What else? Um, very good. So the other two are the, the Pioneers, okay. which I think were even before Voyager. And so they were pretty primitive, um, but they're still going. I've talked to a lot of people for this show on the topics of artificial intelligence and robotics to some extent. And those space probes, in a sense, are robots. And certainly the rovers on Mars are robots. I've watched a presentation that you gave talking about the moons of Saturn, Titan in particular. And you were mentioning, you know, sort of a wish list for um, future spacecraft. And future spacecraft, I think the main wish is they should go faster because it takes so long to get there. Uh, what are some of the other items on the wish list for things going forward? Right. So uh, one of the things that you mentioned is artificial intelligence. And although it's true that these rovers are robots, in most cases, they're not very autonomous. They are only doing things because we're sending commands from Earth. They're not taking decisions on their own in most cases. But obviously, if you can get them to start making decisions on their own, then they become much more powerful. And so particularly um, landing on one of these moons in the outer solar system, that's not the kind of thing that you can command from the Earth, partly because just light takes so long to travel there that by the time you send a command, the spacecraft will already have crashed or whatever. And so it's really important to develop these autonomous capabilities so that the spacecraft can do things like land on terrain where we don't necessarily know exactly what the terrain looks like. So autonomous capabilities are a big thing. And then the other thing is, um, yes, we would like the spacecraft to go faster. And so for instance, this Artemis launch, which was meant to have happened at the end of last month, but they had to delay it, that's potentially very exciting because, you know, that's a very big rocket. And so it's designed to send a lot of mass to the moon, but you could also use it to send a much smaller mass very fast somewhere. And so if you wanted to go back to Pluto, for instance, you'd like to use this really big rocket to get you there because it would just get you there faster. What are some of the other technical challenges that probes going that far out into the solar system face? The biggest one is power. Once you get beyond Jupiter, you can't really use solar power anymore because the sun is just too faint. And so the, the traditional response has been essentially to take a lump of plutonium with you. And in some ways, it's a wonderful piece of engineering. All you do is you have a hot lump of plutonium and then you have cold outer space and you have a wire connecting those two and, it, and you get electricity flowing down the wire and that's your power source. And so it's great for an engineer because there are no moving parts. It, it basically can't break. The trouble is that our supplies of plutonium are limited and plutonium is not a very nice material anyway. And so one of the things that would be very beneficial is it is if we can make more efficient use of the plutonium that we have. Plutonium stocks are quite limited, and so that limits how many spacecraft we can send. What about the, um, the temperature challenges? I mean, there's a lot of equipment, sophisticated equipment on these space probes. Can they be, let, can they be allowed to fall to the ambient temperature of the, the space they're traveling through? Uh, in general, no. And so that's another reason that you need to have a power source. You have a power source to keep these things at a reasonable temperature. And so, in fact, another of the uses of the plutonium is simply as a heat source that you can use it to try and keep things warm. I think the thermal challenges are 
we pretty well understand those at this point. But there are there are other challenges which are sort of more unexpected. So, for instance, if you want to go to Jupiter, Jupiter has these very strong radiation belts. And it turns out that if you put, you know, electronic circuitry in this radiation belt, it dies very quickly. And so any spacecraft that you send to Jupiter has to be pretty heavily armored so that it doesn't instantly get fried by the radiation. Well, this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but um, I'm interested in space science in, in every realm, every aspect. But I have to admit, like I think most people, my ears really prick up when there's the possibility of life. Yep. And it seems like the, the strongest candidates for places where life will be found are places with subsurface oceans, which tend to be the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and, and possibly Uranus and Neptune. I'm not so sure about those two, but uh, Io and Enceladus are the, you know, the really sexy candidates. But you mentioned the strong radiation around Jupiter. Does that count against the possibility of life on uh, Europa? So that, that's a very good question. Um, I, I think the short answer is probably not because any life that might be there is going to shelter beneath a fairly thick ice shell, you know, maybe 10 miles thick. And so um, the radiation is probably not going to affect any organisms that are down in the ocean. And it turns out that actually the, the radiation can cause chemical reactions at the surface that produce substances that life might actually find useful. So it, it may even be um, an aid rather than a hindrance. I think Europa is a, a pretty well-known, you know, potential destination. Uh, Enceladus, probably less so. Would you introduce the, the casual listener to that, that moon? Right. So Enceladus is um, the second moon out from Saturn. It's very small. It's only about the size of the United Kingdom. But what's very unusual about it is that it's actually it's jetting geysers of water and ice into space. And so it's it's active right now. And we think that that water and ice is coming from a subsurface ocean. We're, we're, in fact, we're almost sure of that. And so Enceladus, even though it's tiny, it has a subsurface ocean. And very generously, it's actually giving us free samples of that subsurface ocean. And so people are very excited about Enceladus because in principle, you could send a spacecraft to go and fly past Enceladus and pick up some of this stuff that's coming out of its inside and analyze it. And so that gives you a way of, you know, directly measuring what's going on in the ocean without having to actually go down there yourself. Very handy. Although I understand from one of your talks that uh, you can't really grab those samples if you're passing by at just flyby speeds, not without damaging them. Right. That's the problem. And so the, the Cassini spacecraft actually did this. But what they realized was that the the molecules that the spacecraft was intercepting, the spacecraft was traveling so fast that the molecules broke up. And so you don't have um, a pristine record of what was there originally. And so what you would really like to do is to not just fly by, but to slow down and go into orbit. And then you wouldn't have this problem with the, the molecules breaking apart. One of the problems with uh, that sort of analysis is basically you're just sending data back to Earth. You can't send the actual samples back to Earth. So whatever diagnostic equipment you want to have handy, you know, to examine those molecules with, you have to take with you. It's got to be small. It's got to be autonomous. Uh, what are the challenges there? Right. Um, and so this is a this is always a problem 
for one thing, the technology that you send is automatically going to be 10 or 20 or 30 years out of date by the time it actually gets to make the measurements. And you're very constrained by having to pack everything into a small space and uh, not having very much power. And so there are technical challenges to the kind of instruments that you can bring. Engineers, though, are extremely good at solving these kind of problems. And so I don't think that's the I don't think that's the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is really, if you're going to look for life, then how do you really ensure that you're detecting life and not something weird that we just haven't thought of? And you know, the classic example of that is the, the Viking experiments on Mars, that they had four experiments that were designed to look for life in some sense. And three of them were pretty unambiguously no life. And then the fourth experiment some people still argue is actually evidence for there being life on Mars. And, and so what you end up with is, is this very unsatisfying ambiguity. And so it's how, how do you design an experiment to minimize that ambiguity? That's the real question. Is there a potential answer that you could give that would make sense to a general audience? I think the broad answer is that you, you have to triangulate, that you never rely on one particular experiment, but if you have three or four very different kinds of measurement that are all telling you the same thing, that's when you start to believe the answer. And so that typically one of the things that people like as an indicator for life is that molecules can be like corkscrews, right? They can be either left-handed or right-handed. And it just so happens that all life that we know about only uses right-handed corkscrews and not left-handed corkscrews. And so if you happen to find a bunch of molecules that only exist in the right-handed form and not in the left-handed form, that might be a pretty strong indication that biology is involved. But again, a single measurement you're never going to believe. You need to have several disparate measurements that all sort of point in the same direction. Might the right-handedness of uh, all known you know, organic molecules or biological molecules just be a quirk of Earth evolution? Um, entirely possible. I think that was probably evolution just flipped a coin at one point, And once it got locked in, it never changed. And so if you found a population that only used left-handed molecules, that would actually, in some sense, be even more interesting because it would tell you if there is life, then it must have evolved independently of life on Earth. Now, this is the, the science fiction fan in me coming out, but... Um... If we do find life elsewhere in this solar system, the question arises, did it arise completely independently or were there causal interactions between you know, life on Earth and life that forms elsewhere? Right. And uh, I would invite you to speculate as wildly about that as you care to. <laughs> um, so I, I think in the inner solar system, there's a fairly respectable argument that life may have been transmitted from one planet to another. We know that meteorites from Mars can end up on the Earth. We know that there are probably chunks of the Earth sitting on the moon. And so the planets probably do swap material from time to time. And so if a bacterium hitched a ride on one of these meteorites, you can imagine that um, life may have been swapped around the different planets in the inner solar system. I think that's a much harder case to make for a communication between the inner solar system and the outer solar system. It seems to me very unlikely that a moon of Jupiter is going to know anything about the, the the bacteria that are forming on the Earth. And so I would be 
if there, if there were, to, if we were to find life in the outer solar system, I would be very surprised if it had anything to do with terrestrial life. I'm very interested in talking about the inner solar system, but for now, let's let's stay out past the asteroid belt and uh, maybe go even further. The notion that there were oceans under Europa is very old. I remember I reading you know an Arthur C. Clarke novel about it when I was in high school. But it seems like the candidates for subsurface oceans are or have been proliferating in recent years. What's led to that? What new discoveries or theories or methodologies have have produced so many new potential subsurface oceans? So that that's a really good question. And essentially, all of it's been driven by spacecraft exploration and in particular, Galileo, which was flying around in the 1990s, and then Cassini, that was flying around in the, the 2010s. So Galileo was the spacecraft that went to the Jupiter system, and, and that was the one that really decided that not only is there an ocean on Europa, which we sort of suspected, but there are also oceans on the other two big moons, Ganymede and Callisto, and that was a complete surprise. And then Cassini, when it went to the Saturn system, like I said, one of its very big discoveries was the fact that this tiny moon Enceladus not only has an ocean, but it's also jetting water into space. And then the big moon Titan also looks like it has a subsurface ocean. And so it's really the fact that we could get up close to these objects with good spacecraft. That's really what's driven this recognition that ocean worlds seem to be very common in the outer solar system. So... You know, from the example of our one solar system, it seems like maybe um, ocean worlds with a layer of ice on them are much more common than our sort of world with liquid water on the surface. I think that's right. One of the things, though, that we don't understand is how common moons of gas giants like Jupiter are in other solar systems. I think there's this presumption that probably any big, any big planet is going to have a little family of moons. And if that's true, then... It may be that these these ice-covered moons are the most common forms of, of habitable bodies. Um, but we don't yet know that planets in other solar systems have moons. We suspect it, but nobody's detected one yet. It's a very hard thing to do. So what you're talking about is an exomoon. I am, and people are looking, but they haven't found anything that's convincing yet. And, you know, I think my intuition is that moons are quite common everywhere but stars are very very far away and you know the first exoplanets found were like super jupiters in very close to their sun because those are the only things we could really detect you know with um, the measurement technologies that we were using but i'm i'm very confident that moons are you know as plentiful elsewhere as they are here although i'm i'm no scientist so you know no no i i totally agree i'm, I'm sure they're there it's just a, it's a they're hard to detect Let's push out even further uh, past Jupiter and Saturn. We don't know much about the, the moons of Uranus, at least not nearly as much as we know about Saturn and Jupiter. Why is that? Um, essentially because we've only visited them once. One spacecraft flew by Uranus in 1989, give or take. And so we got a partial image of some of the moons and for for some of the moons you know we we barely have even fuzzy images of parts of the surface and so our information is extremely limited but um even that very limited information suggests that at least some of these moons are actually 
very interesting. And in particular, the, the innermost one, Miranda, has these enormous canyons, you know, like the Grand Canyon, but much, much bigger. And so it's clearly had an interesting geological history. And then um, the second one out, Ariel, also looks like it's been stretched at the surface. And so these things are not dead bodies. They've, they've clearly been active in the past. And so the little information we have suggests that they probably are also extremely interesting. So talking about um, bodies being stretched by, you know, gravitational contact with, with other bodies, life needs energy. Energy could come from uh, geological activity on the interior of a planet, or it could come from the decay of radioactive elements, or it can come just from uh, the stresses of, of gravitation. Would you talk about that? Yes. So um, a moon that's sitting close to a, a giant planet, its shape gets distorted because the, the, the giant planet is big and has a strong gravitational effect. And so the, the moon gets distorted. And if the moon's orbit isn't circular, then that distortion actually changes each time it goes round round the gas giant. And so just like if you take a, a squash ball and you squeeze it many times in your hand, it'll warm up. So these, these moons, because they're getting squeezed and stretched every orbit, they can warm up. And so this what's called tidal heating, that's, that's one way of generating a lot of energy. And so for instance, Jupiter's innermost moon, Io, is the most, most volcanically active body in the solar system. And that's all because of this tidal heating, this squeezing and stretching as it goes around, around Jupiter. So talking about moons, uh, Mercury doesn't have one. Venus doesn't have one. Earth seems to have come from a collision with a, a smaller planet. Uh, Mars has two, but they kind of look like captured asteroids. What about the, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn? What, what's their pedigree? It's a very good question, and I don't think we really know, but the basic idea is that Jupiter formed out of a spinning disk of, of dust and gas that gradually coalesced into the central planet. And probably what happened was that some of that solid material didn't get agglomerated onto Jupiter itself, but it stayed in orbit, and those solid particles gradually collided with each other and, and built up the moons that we see. That's the sort of basic picture, but it may not be entirely correct. Um, one of the things that we don't understand is how old some of these satellites may be. The, the Jupiter system, we think the satellites probably are old, they're as old as the solar system, but some people have argued that in the Saturn system, the satellites might actually be much younger than the age of the solar system. And so I think, some of the details of how these these moons formed are actually still very much up in the air. Let's talk a bit about Saturn's rings. Uh, they are fascinating to me, sort of like the the great red spot on Jupiter. They seem, you know, from the perspective of humans, they seem like permanent fixtures. But if you jump to a different time scale, they're quite transitory. Um, so let's let's start with Saturn. Let's talk about the rings. Right. There are a couple of lines of argument that Saturn's rings are only, say, 100 million years old, which means that when the dinosaurs were getting started, Saturn's rings weren't there. And 
it seems quite likely that that's correct, simply because you have these two very independent arguments that both end up with an age of about 100 million years. Now, how those rings suddenly appeared 100 million years ago, different people have different suggestions, but a, a pretty plausible one is that an inoffensive moon of Saturn somehow got destabilized and went too close to Saturn. And if you go too close to Saturn, then you get pulled apart by the, the gravitational force of Saturn. And so a satellite that wanders too close to Saturn gets pulled apart and converted into the, the rings that we see now. And so quite likely Saturn's rings um, are young because that's when a satellite wandered too close to Saturn. What are the competing theories and where do they disagree with one another? Right. So there are two issues, which is, are the rings young or old and are the moons young or old? And that you can sort of treat them separately. So in terms of the, the rings, the reason that people think the rings are young is that fundamentally they're very bright. Um, they're really easy to see. And that's because they must be made pretty much of pure water ice. Water ice, you know, like snow is very reflective. But we know that in Saturn, there's this sort of background rain of dark dust, which is always there. And so a ring particle, if it, if it sits close to Saturn, it will gradually accumulate dust on its surface and it will become less and less bright. And so the fact that the rings are so bright just means that they can't have been there for very long. So that's one argument that, that suggests they're geologically young. And then the other argument has to do with the fact that um, the rings actually have a tendency to spread outwards over time, that they, um, they get wider and wider as time progresses. And you can sort of, because we know how massive the rings are, we know how long that should take. And it takes, again, about 100 million years. And so there are these two independent lines of evidence, both suggesting that the rings are young. Let's move out toward the Kuiper Belt. Uh, what is the Kuiper Belt? The Kuiper Belt is a, a realm of small, probably icy objects beyond the orbit of Neptune. And so it's really, it's the ragged edge of the outer solar system. And the, the most famous Kuiper Belt object is Pluto. Pluto is no longer a planet, alas, it is merely a dwarf planet and it's a member of the Kuiper Belt family of objects. But if Pluto were still a planet, how many other Kuiper Belt objects would qualify as planets as well? Um, that is the whole problem. So certainly a handful of other Kuiper Belt objects, which are as big as Pluto, would qualify as, as planets. And we suspect that there are many more out there that we haven't seen yet. And there might even be bigger things out there that we haven't seen yet. And so that was really the logic for demoting Pluto, because we didn't want to end up with 20 or 30 planets. When talking about distances uh, in the outer solar system, the distance from the sun to the Earth is an astronomical unit, or an AU. How many AU is it to the start of the Kuiper Belt? The start of the Kuiper Belt is somewhere between about 35 and 40 AU. I don't remember exactly. But one of the ways of thinking about it is that it, it will take light or a radio signal several hours to get from the Earth to the Kuiper Belt. So it, it's a long way. And it actually... Obviously, if you're trying to communicate with a spacecraft, you have to wait for a couple of hours at least for it to reply to you. Whereas communicating with rovers on Mars is 
it, you know, it varies depending on how far, you know, where Mars is in its orbit, but it's, it's on the order of like 20 minutes, right? That's right. And so that's, that's manageable. It slows things down. But if, if you're having to wait for hours, then that's a real problem. Thus, the, the need for autonomy. But it seems to me that autonomy would be really helpful with, you know, landers and probes uh, on the surface. Is it as important with something which spends most of its time just, you know, uh, almost inactive because it's it's just traveling through, um, you know, through space on its way to a, a destination which is very, very far away? Um, no, that's right. And so, in fact, for the New Horizons mission to Pluto, they put it into hibernation. That they, they basically shut off everything except the essentials. And then once a year, they woke it up to, to check that everything was working okay. And then they put it back to sleep again. Um, and so if you're just dealing with something that's in space, then um, autonomy, as you say, is less important. And I mean, the other really remarkable thing is that Newtonian mechanics, orbital mechanics, really works. That you, <laughs> you, know, you can predict where this thing is going to be 20 years from now, and you're not going to be wrong. And so as long as you stay away from the atmospheres and the surfaces and complicated things like that, as long as you're flying through space, you can predict very, very accurately what your spacecraft is going to do. And so that's, that's a big simplification. So Jupiter and Saturn are the gas giants. And then Uranus and Neptune, I've heard described as ice giants. That's right. Um, it's a useful label to distinguish them from Jupiter and Saturn, but um, it actually conceals our almost total ignorance of what their insides are like. We, we really don't know what their insides are made of. We're, we're assuming that there's water in some form down there. We don't really know whether it's ice or something stranger. Um, there's probably rock down there too. I don't think we have any idea of what the balance between the rock and the ice is. And there are probably other weird ices like maybe methane or ammonia too. And so it's probably this hodgepodge and then with a thin hydrogen envelope on top. Um, but our ignorance of the insides of Uranus and Neptune is, is very profound. And then how about as we move out into the Kuiper Belt? How, how do objects change out there? As far as we can tell, they're probably mostly water, ice, and rock. But the really interesting thing about the Kuiper Belt is that it's, it's so far from the sun that things that you wouldn't normally think of as solids are solid. And so, for instance, Pluto has these glaciers made of solid nitrogen ice that the, the nitrogen in our atmosphere has frozen out at Pluto. And so it becomes these glaciers that start in the mountains and grind their way down into the lowlands. And, you know, if you went even further out, then things like argon might liquefy. I don't even whether, know whether it would be a liquid or a solid, but you can imagine argon rivers flowing on the surface. And so the, the substances that become geologically interesting are very, very different in the outer solar system compared to the substances that we care about, like water in, in the inner solar system. In the inner solar system, um, outside of Earth, water is a, a precious commodity. There's not much of it, but there's a lot of it out there in the Kuiper Belt, it sounds like. That's right. And it'll be frozen near the surface, but because some of these objects are quite big and have quite a lot of rock, 
somewhere like Pluto, quite likely also again has a liquid water ocean on the inside. It, it'll be protected beneath a thick layer of ice, but nonetheless, it's quite likely that there's liquid water down there. A few years ago, there was a, a probe that went to the outer solar system called New Horizons, and its primary objective was Pluto. Um, and then it had another objective that was assigned after the fact, which I think is fascinating. But let's let's pause at Pluto, even though the, uh, the New Horizons itself could not pause at Pluto. It had to fly on by. Uh, what what did we really want to know about Pluto before New Horizons got there? Um, good question. So one way of thinking about it is what did we know about Pluto before? And our best images of Pluto before New Horizons were taken by Hubble, the space telescope, and they were maybe three or four pixels across. And so we had this incredibly fuzzy image of Pluto that didn't really tell us anything at all about what it was like as a, as a geological world. We did know that it had an atmosphere of some kind, but we knew nothing about its geology or its history. And so we simply couldn't answer the questions that I'm interested in. What's it like on the inside? How has it evolved? And so New Horizons changed all of that basically by taking very good pictures of half the surface. And so we could actually recognize things like impact craters on the surface. We could recognize rift valleys. And so from being essentially an astronomical object a few pixels across, we converted it into a world with its own geological history and its own story. And Pluto, um, aside from no longer being a planet, uh, isn't isn't a body with a satellite orbiting it like the Earth is. Uh, it's it's part of a two body system that are both orbiting a, a point between them. Talk talk about Charon. That, that's right. So so. Pluto's moon Charon is unusual in that it's very big. It's about a tenth the mass of Pluto. And um, just like our moon, Charon also always presents the same face towards Pluto. But unlike our Earth, Pluto always presents the same face towards Charon. And so they're always staring at each other in the same direction. And that's, that's what our Earth moon system will look like in a few billion years time. Charon itself, is also geologically interesting. It has these vast fissures or fractures on the surface that makes it look like it's been sort of pulled apart. And we think that it probably had an ocean early in its history, but that ocean didn't survive. And as the as the water converted to ice, um, just like you know the ice in your pipes expands and causes the pipes to crack, the surface of Pluto cracked as the water converted to ice in the inside. Sorry, the surface of Charon. So, Charon, uh, not Charon. I I go backwards and forwards. I'm totally. <laughs> I, I think either is acceptable. Well, Charon uh, has a you know a unpleasant association with K E or K A R E N, which is now a personality type. Interesting. <laughs> Do you know the Charon personality type? I've heard of it, and I've also heard the story that the the wife of the discoverer of Karen or Charon was called Sharon. <laughs> well, Sharon's okay, but uh, Karen wants to talk to your manager. She has some complaints. Interesting. Yeah, that's the personality type. Entitled and um, going to do something about her dissatisfaction. Hopefully get somebody fired. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, once New Horizons passed Pluto, you know, everything still worked. Uh, it was still good for something, but it didn't really have a destination. So the folks at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, they looked around for some, you know, new mission to assign to this thing, which is already hurtling out, you know, out of the solar system. How did that go? Yes. So we sort of know roughly how many objects there are in the Kuiper Belt. And so we knew there was a, a pretty good chance of being able to just divert the spacecraft slightly and go and visit um, another Kuiper Belt object. The problem was finding them. And so a lot of space telescope time was spent to identify possible targets. One was found. And so New Horizons was diverted very slightly and zoomed past this small Kuiper Belt object. This one is only, I think, about 20 miles across or so. So, you know, the size of a size of a Los Angeles, basically. And so it turned out to be interesting and actually we'd seen something like it before it basically looked like a snowman it had a small blob attached to a big blob and so presumably what happened is that the the small blob and the big blob were originally separate but they drifted together and they just sort of smushed into this this composite figure that we see and we've actually seen objects like that before uh, a european spacecraft flew past a comet and this comet also had this funny snowball appearance, two lumps smushed together. And that's maybe not entirely surprising because we think that many comets originally come from the Kuiper Belt. And so what this is telling you is something about how objects in the Kuiper Belt um, grow and evolve basically by collisions, gentle collisions, that they, they weren't hitting each other very fast. They just slowly drifted together and agglomerated like that. Well, as a planetary scientist, I imagine you'd like to have a probe in orbit of Pluto. Um, there have been probes that have orbited Jupiter and Saturn. Why not Pluto? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we actually, we looked at this as part of uh, one of the National Academy's studies. And so what would it take to get into orbit around Pluto? So the big problem is to get to Pluto in a reasonable time, you have to travel very fast. But then if you want to get into orbit around Pluto, you have to slow yourself down. And so you need to take a real ton of fuel. And so it's a very hard problem to solve. And then the other problem is that if you want to send a really capable spacecraft there, and you better do because it's gonna take you 20 years or so to get there, then you need a lot of power. And so you need a lot of plutonium. And so, we looked at it quite hard and it's technically feasible, but it's just, you would need a really big rocket and really a lot of plutonium. And it seems like it's just, it's unlikely to happen much, much though I would love to see it happen. It's just technically it's very challenging. I imagine it would be a choice between, do you want this mission or three others? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I imagine there's also a similar tension between these robotic probes to the outer solar system and potentially manned missions on the inner solar system. So that's, that's an interesting question. The, the way that NASA is structured, the, the human exploration effort is really very separate from the, the robotic exploration effort. And so I don't think there's at least direct competition, um, but certainly... This, this big rocket, the, the Artemis rocket, that's being built for astronauts, but 
once the rocket is built, then planetary scientists and robotic missions can certainly take advantage of that technology. So I think there are there are some ways in which we actually benefit from the, the human space effort exploration. I mean, a, a big question is the extent to which human space exploration actually pushes science forwards. Um, and you can argue about that and you can argue about whether it's a cost effective way of doing it. But I think there are there's some ways in which human space exploration really does help. I have prejudices in that area. Um, I do too. I, yes, they are. They're summed up in the phrase canned apes. Uh, <laughs> when you send humans into space, you also have to send this bubble of Earth atmosphere with the right mixture of gases. You need radiation protection. You need water. You need to keep the temperature within a certain range. That's most of your that's most of the energy expended on the mission is maintaining that bubble. So yep. my, my mantra is uh, space is for robots. Yep. And it's not a popular mantra among the general public because we want boots on the ground. Well, and and to be fair, I think that, you know, if if there's real enthusiasm for boots in the ground on the ground, some of that will spill over into other exploration efforts. And so I think there are advantages to having a strong manned spacecraft program. But I completely agree that the the science bang for your buck is much bigger if you use a robotic mission. I was talking to somebody yesterday who was a bit of a uh, techno curmudgeon. I've come out of a um, intellectual trajectory over the course of a decade and a half where I went through a period of being pretty committed to the idea that the collapse of industrial civilization was a real possibility in the near future. And I'm no longer inhabiting that headspace, but because I was podcasting that whole time, I'm in contact with the whole you know, subculture of people who are still there. And uh, this person I was talking to said he was pretty sure we're never going to make it to Mars. And I didn't I didn't dwell on it. But in my head, I was thinking, well, who's we? Because th there are multiple working rovers on Mars right now built by humans. From my perspective, we made it to Mars, you know, quite a while ago. <laughs> and that, you know, putting canned apes uh, in orbit and sending some of them down to the surface, you know, that's that's a plant the flag moment. That's that's, you know, uh, photographs for the newspapers and whatnot. But. You know, we got there a long time ago. There, mm -hmm. There is an active human presence on Mars. It's just remote. Right. And the, the next step is to bring things back from Mars to Earth, which I, I have to say still sounds a little like science fiction to me. But um, we are assured that that's going to happen in the next decade or so. And so um, that's a, a small step. I, I agree that putting boots on the ground on Mars is a, is a long way off. Well, I'm one of the folks who, uh, you know, I'm 54, and this is not the 2022 that I imagined when I was in high school. Uh, things are a lot more prosaic than I was expecting. So I'm, I'm ready for the science fiction future to arrive, even if it's a little bit late. Yes, no flying cars. I can do without the flying cars, but I really would like the moon bases and, you know, the, the more advanced um, space development than we've gotten. Yes. Yeah, flying cars never did make a whole lot of sense, really. Well, they were neat to look at. People are working on these, like, these small, privately driven helicopters. And that, that might be a real thing. I don't know how it's going to work. It'll be toys for rich, rich kids. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking mostly about the outer solar system, but I think you, uh, a lot of your earlier work was around Venus. Is that right? Yep. So... What I, I knew that the Soviets had sent probes to Venus. That's how we have pictures of the surface of Venus. I didn't realize until fairly recently how many they sent. 
Yes, I I don't remember the full count either, but it was it was a handful, and and some of them worked better than others. But I think the fact that any of them worked at all is absolutely remarkable, particularly with nineteen seventies technology. I mean, the you, Venus is the surface of Venus is so hostile; it's like you're being under a mile of ocean, and the surface temperature is enough to melt lead. That's pretty challenging, and yet they had spacecraft that survive for an hour or so and manage to send back pictures. I mean, that's that's a real technological tour de force. I've heard uh, interesting proposals for colonization of Venus that rest on the idea that Venus has such a thick atmosphere, it extends much further from Earth, or from the surface of Venus than Earth's atmosphere does, and that there's a zone where the atmospheric pressure would be pretty comfortable for humans, where the temperature would be pretty comfortable. It's not breathable, but, you know, uh, temperature and pressure are two big hurdles to overcome. And, you know, this putting like a, a platform suspended under a balloon here gets those two for you. How how crazy is that notion? I, I don't think it's totally crazy. I, I haven't heard it in that context exactly, but I have heard people argue that there are regions in Venus's atmosphere, as you say, that life in general could tolerate. And so um, people have these ideas of, of bacteria or even bigger animals floating around in the, the levels of Venus's atmosphere where the, the temperature and the pressure are kind of acceptable. And so um, I think it's unlikely, but um, people have certainly thought about those kind of possibilities. Well, there were news stories in the past couple of years, I think, where it was reported that methane had been detected in the atmosphere of Venus. But then I think maybe that got walked back. And that's important because methane is most likely to be there because it was generated by some biological activity. The claim is that there's been methane detected on Mars. And absolutely, people started to make arguments about it might be being produced by bacteria. This is very controversial, and certainly there are people out there who don't believe it. I think the Venus story is actually not methane, but phosphine, which is another of these molecules that people tend to associate with life. Um, I could very well have mashed those two stories together in my memory. Uh, that's quite likely. And, and again, I think further analysis has showed that the phosphine detection probably doesn't hold up. Well, I'm I'm tempted to plunge into uh, to Mercury, but let's, let's linger on Venus for a second. What question am I failing to ask about Venus? Well, I think the really exciting thing about about Venus is that we're about to learn a lot more about it because not one but three spacecraft missions are going to be going there in about a decade or so. So NASA will be sending two missions there, and then the Europeans are sending one. And so understanding of Venus is about to undergo this sort of quantum jump that the, the spacecraft are gonna be much more capable. I think the, the big questions, let's see. I mean, fundamentally, if you were an astronomer, you would say that Venus and the Earth were the same. They're the same size, they're the same density. And yet when you look at them in detail, they're totally different. Venus has this thick atmosphere. It doesn't have a magnetic field. Venus doesn't have plate tectonics. And so, from an astronomical point of view, they should be the same. But when you look at them, they're totally different. And we, we do not understand why. What was it about their different evolutionary paths that ended them up in such different places? That's really the fundamental question. And we don't right now have a, have a good answer to that. 
Well, just intuitively to my non-scientific brain, it, it seems like that very thick atmosphere plays a, a big role. Certainly. So um, there's this nice argument that the reason Venus doesn't have plate tectonics is because it's so dry. And the reason that it's so dry is because it's so hot. And the reason that it's so hot is because it has this thick atmosphere. And so, you, you know, there are bits of the argument that you can put together, but you still need to understand why does it have a thick atmosphere to begin with? And maybe that's just to do with the distance from the sun. But it seems like we must have just got really lucky, right? Because Venus and the Earth aren't that far apart. And yet, is there really a divide between being Venus's distance from the sun and being the Earth's distance from the sun that gives you this huge difference in, in how they evolve? It seems, seems improbable to me. Well, uh, one of the you know, the meta narratives about life on Earth is just how extremely rare the conditions on Earth are. You know, not just our distance from the sun and our atmosphere, but uh, our moon, you know, to provide, uh, to stabilize, you know, the wobble of our, our uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? The wobble of the axis of the Earth. Yep. And, you know, many other things as well. And may, maybe even the position of Jupiter in our solar system, you know, protecting us from even more impacts than the earth has suffered already. As so many different factors come together in the earth that it might be very, very rare indeed. We just don't know. We have a sample size of one for life in the universe. So kind of hard to generalize. Well, let's head on in then to, uh, to Pluto. I'm reading or listening as an audiobook to a science fiction novel by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson called 2312. And uh, the main character lives on Pluto. She lives in a city which is on tracks, which slowly circumnavigates the planet to stay just ahead of the sunrise. So you mean, you mean Mercury, not Pluto? I did. I did mean Mercury. Yes. We're heading into the sun. Yes. Wow. What a great idea. <laughs> well, supposedly Mercury rotates so slowly on its axis that you could walk and stay just ahead of the sunrise. And, you know, on the the side away from the sun, it's bitterly cold. On the side facing the sun, you know, you will be fried post haste. But if you stay right there at the Terminator and it moves so slowly, you can walk it. You could do that. So in the book, there are uh, sort of cultists who that's what they do. They just walk, you know, just ahead of the sunrise on Mercury as long as they can. And then, you know, when they get completely exhausted, they go inside the city, which is on tracks, which is still, yeah. you know, on that same trajectory. Yeah. It's it's a very thin book in terms of plot and character, but it's it's a lot of fun world building. It's a, it's you know it's three hundred years from now, and uh, things are bad on Earth, but there are humans throughout the solar system, and they've they've you know diversified to adapt to a lot of different environments. I mean, there's nobody living, you know, in in absurdly extreme conditions, but people still are adapting to life in space and and sort of you know dividing into different species. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fun brain candy, but as I say, as a novel, in terms of plot and character, it's it's pretty thin. Are you a are you a science fiction reader? Um, yes. So uh, I read an enormous amount of science fiction when I was growing up. These days, uh, I have less time, and also I have a hard time separating the wheat from the chaff. I will say that I've really enjoyed watching The Expanse, which is a, a TV series based on. Um, a set of books, which is, it sounds like a similar universe to Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, you have people living in the asteroid belt and on Mars and on the earth. And it's, 
it's done very well. It's the the you know it's hard science fiction. They get the science right, but it's also politically very interesting. And so I've enjoyed that an enormous amount. Yeah, the Expanse, the TV show, it basically introduced physics to television science fiction yeah. for the first time. Yes. So gravity is a thing. Inertia is a thing, and yes. um, you know, travel time is definitely yep. a thing. Yep. Which in, in previous science fiction has all been hand waved away. You know, there's an up and a down in a tiny little spaceship. You know, you walk around on the floor and no explanation is required and you can leap to light speed and who cares about inertia? If, you know, you could just sit there in a chair with no seatbelt on. It's all good. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, The Expanse doesn't do that. And yeah, 2312 is in that same vein. Um, the Expanse, at least the TV show, I haven't read the novels, you know, it incorporates some very fantastical elements in, in terms of the uh, extraterrestrial presence which is not present in Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, novel. More on Mercury. Mercury, I've heard it described as the core of a planet that's had its outer shell knocked away. Is there any plausibility to that? Um, right. So the, the observation is that Mercury is basically a big ball of molten iron with a rather thin rock layer on top. And so it, it's very different from the Earth, where most of the Earth is rock with a, you know, a, a relatively small iron portion. And so we'd like to understand why Mercury is so different. And a very popular explanation is that Mercury started out bigger and more Earth-like, and then it collided with something that stripped most of the rock away and basically left this, this almost exposed iron core. I think that's very likely because there are there's other evidence of other big collisions like the fact that the earth has a big moon and so we do think that big collisions happened early in solar system history but not everybody is convinced by that some people think that well maybe it was so close to the sun and it was so hot that the rock just had a hard time condensing out i think that's less likely but but some people prefer that explanation well there's another sort of body that is not a part of our solar system, but sometimes passes through, and that's you know, uh, extra stellar visitors like Oumuamua. Yep. Um, I heard you talking about that in a, a video, and these things are moving very, very quickly. It would be really difficult to get a probe, you know, to one to examine it, much less slow it down and you know keep yep. it around for detailed examination. But what are the hopes there? The best idea seems to be that you could put a spacecraft into orbit and then just let it hibernate there and wait for one of these things to come by. And then if you're lucky, you could actually, you have enough warning that you could accelerate and try and sort of match speed with it. I don't know how much serious work has done in, gone into looking at what the, what the chances of that actually working are. But the Europeans are actually planning to do this with a comet that they're going to put a spacecraft into orbit and let it just loiter there. And then every so often a comet comes in that we've never seen before. And so they want to go and look at that comet before it gets anywhere near the sun and before it's being cooked. And so the idea is you just hang around and you wait for an, an uncooked comet to come by. So there's there's some precedent, but the comets are not moving as fast as these these interstellar visitors. What's the advantage of being able to examine a comet that uh, hasn't yet been cooked by the sun, as you say? One of the things we'd really like to understand is what the, what the primordial solar system was made of. Because when we look at a planet, a planet has 
undergone all kinds of processes since it was originally built out of the primordial material. And so to understand what the solar system was like at the beginning, we'd really like to look at that primordial material. And so a comet that is uncooked is, you know, that's the closest thing to the primordial material that we're going to get. And so examining it up close would be very interesting. Most of the comets that we've seen, they've passed by the sun many times. And so a lot of the original stuff has boiled away. And so it's not there any longer. And so there is a real advantage to, to looking at a comet before it encounters the sun. Well, we've been on for about an hour, but uh, my usual final question is, um, you know, what would you like to talk about that I haven't brought up? Well, I think we shouldn't forget the Earth. I've heard of that. <laughs> what, what, one of the more entertaining conferences I went to recently was a bunch of people who study neutrinos. Neutrinos are tiny little particles that barely interact with matter at all. Um, but the, these neutrino people figured out that they actually might be able to say something interesting about the inside of the Earth. And, and so far, um, it, it's not been terribly impressive. I mean, they, they can use neutrinos to detect that the Earth exists. Okay, that's a good step. And they can use neutrinos to tell us that the inside of the Earth is denser than the outside of the Earth. Okay. Um, but in principle, they may be able to tell us what kind of elements are sitting around inside the earth. And that would actually be extremely useful. So for instance, how much hydrogen there is in the earth, we don't know that, we have no idea. And it would actually be a very useful thing to learn because that will tell us a lot about how the earth actually was put together in the first place. And the, the neutrino physicists might be able to tell us that, and there's really no other way anybody can think of of doing that. So this is another example where technology from a very different field, we might ultimately be able to apply to, to answer interesting planetary science questions. It occurs to me that uh, you asked for a question or two in advance, and the one that I said I would ask first, I haven't asked yet. Uh, and it, it's to do with deep time. I'm thinking right now of a video I saw of um, a shallow, the camera is underwater, it's pointing at the sand in, in you know, a, a shallow region, and there's a lot of starfish on the bottom of, you know, on the sand. And from our perspective, they're not moving. But then they show a time-lapse image, or, you know, time-lapse sequence of what the starfish actually do. And they're zipping around on the sand, and they, they come up to each other, and they're clearly interacting, and there's a clear social scene among the starfish there, but we don't see it, because we're moving too fast. Our, our perspective is just not right for seeing that. And the solar system has a dynamic history with many stages in it, things, you know, that used to be very, um, you know, front and center and aren't anymore and, you know, vice versa. If we could step out of our, you know, human time frame and look at, you know, the, the fast forward, the, uh, the time lapse image of the progression of things in the solar system, what sort of processes would we see that we can't see from our, you know, where we are embedded in time? Right. So the human timescale is just inappropriate for thinking about um, geological events. I, I think the classic example of that is that if you sit around long enough, something big is going to hit the Earth. But to have a dinosaur killing impact, that only happens every 500 million years or something. And so there are these rare events that are nonetheless geologically very important 
that we simply have no experience of because our time scale is wrong. You can make similar comments about volcanic eruptions, right? There are volcanic eruptions that we know covered half the US in ash many feet thick, but because they only happen every million years, we just have no experience of that. And so I think what our human timescale does, it means that we don't really appreciate that catastrophic things can happen. And those catastrophic things can have a, you know, a very significant effect on the evolution of planets. The, the impact that formed the moon was a catastrophic event. And we can only deduce it's, it's that the fact that it happened from various arguments that I'm, I'm not going to go into. But I, I think we as human beings are bad at understanding catastrophes because they happen rarely. Professor Francis Nimmo, this has been a, a very enjoyable conversation for me. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. That was Francis Nimmo, and I hope to talk to him again, because for me, I don't know about you, but for me, that was a very fun conversation. And if you're hearing me here at the end of the podcast, it probably was for you as well. You know, I said I couldn't remember just exactly how many uh, missions that the Soviet Union sent to Venus. They sent 10, 10 missions to Venus to get a few images and a few readings, and none of the, uh, the craft that they sent was operational for more than an hour once it hit the ground. Venus is a tough nut to crack. And as I said, the, uh, the big news in space this year, I mean, it's been a pretty cool year for, <laughs> for getting stuff into space, uh, but the James Webb Space Telescope was very long in the, uh, you know, in the preparatory stages, many times delayed, huge cost overruns, but it's up there now. It's at uh, Lagrange Point number two, and it is doing its thing. Uh, there's been some damage, I think, from micrometeorites, but it is still operational and providing amazingly detailed images of things that are very, very far away. Which means that it's looking way back in time. Now, the other thing that is supposed to happen this year, I mean, again... Space exploration and the development of, of launch vehicles and, you know, plans to develop the moon. There's a lot happening right now. I mean, there's a lot happening. There are whole podcasts and YouTube channels and various other streams of information devoted to just keeping people informed on what's going on. But the really big development, I think, looking back, it's going to be, if it happens, the first launch of NASA's Space Launch System, or SLS which NASA describes as a super-heavy lift vehicle that provides the foundation for human exploration beyond Earth's orbit. With its unprecedented power and capabilities, SLS is the only rocket that can send Orion, which is a lunar capsule, astronauts and cargo directly to the moon on a single mission. So it was supposed to launch last month, and it didn't work out. There, I think, was a, um, a failure of a sensor in one of the engines. So it has been rolled back for testing and uh, recharging of batteries. And, you know, the longer they wait, the more, the more maintenance they have to do on it to keep it ready to go. But better infinite delays than a tragedy on the launch pad. Or, you know, anywhere. <laughs> better delays than tragedy. And then there's SpaceX. You know, SpaceX is doing it seat of the pants style. Uh, they, they launch a lot of rockets and some of them explode and some of them don't land quite right. But they're definitely taking the um, ready, fire, aim, fire approach. 
and making great strides. You know, the world is full of weird internet nerds who are uh, uncritical defenders of everything Elon Musk does. And then there are people who are just as rabid, but in the opposite direction. They hate every step the man takes. They hate the way he brushes his teeth. They hate the clothes he wears. They hate it when he takes his clothes off. <laughs> and I fall into neither camp, but I am super excited about space. And he is working hard and devoting enormous resources and, and gathering amazing pools of talent and focusing them on the task of getting humanity off of Earth. And I approve of that 100%. We did talk a little bit about artificial intelligence in this episode, and uh, if you are down for more such excursions off the, uh, the core path that we've established here on the Padverb Podcast, do let me know. You can reach me via email. My email address is kmo at padverb.com. We have a Telegram group that you can find on the page that describes the podcast on padverb.com. And usually my sense of, uh, of symmetry requires that I have a third option to give you, but that's pretty much it email, telegram. I hope to hear from you. Thanks, as always, to the production team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Alina Voigt, and assistant producer Sonia Saw. I'll be back here next week with another conversation. Talk to you then. <laughs>